So favorite Christmas song, least favorite Christmas song, go. Oh, uh, favorite Christmas song is, can I choose Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, Ain't No Hole in the Wash Tub? <laughs> I've never heard that Christmas classic, but yes, you can. Yeah, it's from the Jim Henson's Emmett Otter Christmas, which is like one of those 45-minute TV special type movies. But with adorable otter puppets is what you're telling me. Oh, yeah. Plus snake puppets and bear puppets and all kinds of puppets. Um, And then least favorite, I don't know. I mean, God, probably anything by the chipmunks. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think the chipmunks might be terrible, but I don't know. There's something about rocking around the Christmas tree. Maybe it's because uh, when I was a kid... They forced us to do a little dance routine in it. You know how they love when you're in uh, grade school making little kids dance to songs. And I remember even then thinking, this is bullshit. Yeah. Um, How about what's your favorite? Oh, my favorite? I mean, I like some of the classical ones, um, like um, Come All You Faithful or um, Carol of the Bells. Um, or um, uh No, I mean, but I, of course, I like, I like White Crit. I like, yeah, I like that one. I like, um, I like Carol of the, I think Carol of the Bells is pretty cool. Uh, especially when the the deeper voice people just go ding dong ding dong, um, and then I do like George Michael's Last Christmas for the the modern classics. And I mean, really, at this point, we can't deny the Queen of Christmas herself, Mariah Carey. Yeah, that's true. Um, she one, owns one Christmas. It's not a Christmas song, but Car- um, Carmina Burana. Isn't by Carl Orff? Isn't that a, a classic symphony, symphony symphony orchestra piece? Isn't that that choral piece that's the, very dramatic, dun, dun, like O oh, oh, Fortuna? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. saw Pan Siberian Orchestra do that once, and so that I mean I it wish- wasn't Christmassy, but like at the end of their Christmas concert, they threw in a couple of of extra bonus tracks. And, we uh, should turn that into a Christmas classic. Yeah, that was pretty epic. All right. Well, let's start the show. Necromancer is here to slay the Christmas times. <laughs> I like it. Um We are Necromancer. Necromancer. I'm Shira. I am a fan of romantic comedies. I'm Brett, and I am a fan of horror movies. Together, each week, Brett and I pick a theme. He picks one horror movie. I pick one rom-com. We make each other watch those movies, and then we flip-flop them around in the opposite genre by turning the rom-com into a horror, the horror into a rom-com. It's very fun. Nobody else is doing it like we are. Uh, Jira, and what? 
I don't know if you got me anything for Christmas, but I got you something for Christmas. And that is a mega stuffed episode of Necromancer, a two for one combo. For Christmas? For me? Yeah. And for all of you. That's right. This episode, it's all about Christmas. And just like holidays episodes fast, we're doing it two for one. Normally, we'll do one movie per per episode, but this time we're bringing them all together. Now, Brett, I'm going to assume because this is a holiday episode that you decided to do a fusion movie. I did. It was a pain in my butt, but I'm really happy with what I got. (laughs) Oh, I hope it involves a bunch of sorority girls ending up in a cottage in England. Nope. No, you didn't keep the swap part. I did not. No, but I, I got a good one. I got what a good if it's, one. You could have done serial killers that swap countries. <laughs> like, That's oh true. man, I've really worn out. <laughs> I've really worn out this area. Jack the Ripper and Zodiac killers swap <laughs> places. <laughs> you know, after you've killed a whole bunch of people in Surrey, it's just not the same anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited for that. So more more on Christmas. Are you are you a big Christmas guy? Do you do you feel the spirit moving you? Oh no! I mean, as a kid, yeah, it was great because I got presents. But now, as an adult, it's like ugh, I, it's like it's the obligation. I'm very much a Larry David. It's like ugh gift giving you know like then people give me gifts then i have to return the gift or then it's like oh what uh, what what do you want like what either i buy you something that you don't want or you just tell me what you want and then i like and then i buy you that and it's ugh, christmas is so dumb but i mean now that like my brother has kids it's kind of cool to like get them toys and stuff and keep the christmas spirit alive Right. Now, the spirit of Christmas is is definitely with the kids. You know, I have a confession to make. I had no idea for a good amount of my life. I'm not going to say the first 10 years because I figured by 10, I knew about the whole Jesus thing. But I had no idea that Christmas, even though Christ is in the name, had anything to do with Jesus. Oh, yeah. Big time. Uh He was was born on that day, according to the Bible. Some would say that this is actually the most important day for Jesus. But really, I grew up without any religious understanding of Christmas. I thought that Christmas was Santa. I thought that Christmas was Christmas trees and gifts and reindeers. and, And I feel like... Other than the fact that it's called Christmas and Christ is in the name, it's very easy to be willfully ignorant about the uh, religious part of Christmas. Now, do you have one big reason why you didn't know Jesus was associated with Christmas? Or do you have eight tiny little reasons? What are the, what do you mean? Hanukkah, eight days of Hanukkah. Oh, well, I mean, I, I knew, I knew that Hanukkah was a religious holiday. I just, uh, in, in my house, we kind of, I grew up really without religion. Um, and, and, and nobody, nobody was like, this is the story of Christmas. I mean, I'd seen Christmas stories like, um, 
what is it? Scrooge uh, and, and all of and that Muppets. and the Muppets. Yeah. So I knew that Michael Caine had to learn a lesson right. about uh, not being greedy on Christmas so there were stories about Christmas, but nobody was like, oh, and Jesus was born this day. I didn't even know what a nativity scene was for the longest time and that you weren't supposed to put baby Jesus in the scene until Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. Yeah, I guess it would be Christmas Eve. Yeah. So that it's was like, just it's all like news to me. On New Year's. <laughs> You drop baby Jesus into the crib. <laughs> Hark, he's here. <laughs> but yeah, I I had no I had no idea. My my parents are uh, hardcore libertarians, and I I had what you could call free market childhood. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't actually know that there was a, a market for religion during Christmas for the longest time. I was shielded from this. And wow. I don't think that either of these two movies teach us the uh, religious meaning of Christmas either. It's It still embraces for me all the tenets of uh, secular Christmas, which are just Christmas trees, gift giving, and women gathering around cups of hot cocoa. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably for the better. I don't think, I don't know if God wants to be associated with murder. Although he probably, I mean, he did a lot of it to be fair, but um, yeah, I don't know. So apparently though, one thing I did read was that Black Christmas did trigger some of the religious types because they didn't like that all of this uh, murdering was happening on uh, the holiest day of the year. Sure, I could see that. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately for them, there's, there's a lot of uh, unholiness happening on Christmas. This is a time of year where depression is at an all-time high. So um, a, lot of, a lot of sinning to do on Christmas. Yeah, might as well. What happens on Christmas stays on Christmas. <laughs> All that ho-ho-hoing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to go there. So let's talk about what movie we should do first. I watched The Holiday first and then watched Black Christmas because I saw the run times of these movies. I didn't. So I watched Black Christmas first and then I watched The Holiday. But then it was kind of one of those things where I thought, well, I'll I'll watch The Bitter first and get The Sweet second. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind talking about The Holiday first, but I'm I'm neutral. I can... Let's do it. Let, okay. Let's go to Nancy Meyerland. Yeah. You know, you know how we talk about um, or how we've talked about uh, romance or rom-coms being sci-fi. Uh, Nancy Myers is our Stanley Kubrick. Her rom-com world is like a Mac store, clean and white and elegant. <laughs> Are they all connected? Is there a Myers verse? Uh, I don't know about that, but all of her characters tend to dress the same and have great kitchens. Oh, 
there, there you have it. <laughs> yeah, expensive kitchens in a closet full of beige and white is a Nancy Meyer signature. Gotcha. One of those director's trademarks that you find on IMDb. Something like that. You know, like how Edgar Wright loves pop music. Yeah. Um, so you probably had a lot more choices to choose from than I did. Uh, so how, many choices. How did you funnel it down to just one one little movie to put on top of the Christmas tree? So, I mean, I guess I'm thinking about your just your greater rom-com education. And we already did Richard Curtis when we did Notting Hill. And he's also directed a very well-known Christmas movie called Love Actually. And I am actually not that big a fan of Love Actually. Uh, and I wasn't sure if I should put you through another experience with Hugh Grant <laughs> just just yet. Not not when you still haven't recovered from your previous Hugh Grant exposure. Uh, I, I just I just don't think that you would be able to handle that much uh, awkward stuttering Englishman. Uh, so I gave you a cool one instead. Uh, but uh, th- so there's that. And then there's also, um, I guess, you know, You've Got Mail and The Shop Around the Corner, the movie that You've Got Mail is based on, could also be considered Christmas movies. But I kind of want to save those. Uh, I don't know. I think that we could definitely do something with letter writing uh, and things like that. That, that might, or technology, that might mean that uh, You've Got Mail would be a great fit for that. Uh, and then, I, I mean, I thought of some other movies, too, like Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara Stanwyck. But, you know, we, we've already done The Lady Eve, which was mentioned in The Holiday. In my notes, I wrote that down in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Eve! Um, and, and so I thought, you know, it's about time we did a Nancy Myers movie so that, you know, y- you know, you're Rob Reiner, you know, you're Richard Curtis. Uh, we haven't gotten to Nora F. Well, oh, we did get to Nora Ephron when we did, uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's time to get another one of the big ones in there. And Nancy Meyer, uh, has had a pretty big influence on rom-coms. I think that, the later rom-coms she's written have been a little bit better because uh, those rom-coms have been about uh, people her age, like Something's Gotta Give uh, with Diane Keaton and uh, Jack Nicholson. Uh, and um, It's Complicated, which again has Diane Keaton. And so she writes really well uh, when it comes to seasoned romances about women who are a little bit older, a little bit more established in their lives and careers. And so it's this kind of uh, upper middle class fantasy of second chance uh, at love and romance. So I think that she's very effective that way. That's why I like to say she's she's the Stanley Kubrick of rom-coms because she's very clean and exact. And you can tell watching the movie, she's very polished. Yeah, uh, I was going to say this movie feels like it is a well-workshopped movie. Every, I mean, even though it was a little bit long, every scene does feel 
like they pretty much worked it over and worked out all the kinks and you know i you know there weren't any major glaring flaws in the movie it was it was just like really well polished all right it's like it's it's like martha stewart it's just it's it's a very particular kind of upper upper class wealthy vibe that is aspirational in the way that it sort of gives you this fantasy, this, this single woman fantasy. But I think that it's incredibly appealing to a lot of women. And I think that this movie is very appealing to them, particularly around this time of year when so many women are lonely. Yeah. Um, I've been a lonely woman on Christmas before, and I wish someone had recommended this movie to me. (laughs) Um, All right. Should we get into it? Yeah. Before we start the actual um, synopsis going through the movie, I want to say this movie is long, two hours and 20 minutes almost. It could have been shorter. Could have been shorter. However, so I was going into it thinking, ugh. All right, but I knew you were, but Andy knows Nancy Myers and all this. Like I, I, I knew what I was getting into, but at the very beginning of the movie, I saw a little credit, uh, director of photography, Dean Coondy. Who's Dean, Dean Coondy is no stranger to the show, although he might be a stranger to the audience because he shot a little movie called Halloween. No way. Oh, yeah. He shot Halloween, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, uh, Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future Trilogy, and Jurassic Freaking Park. So when I saw his name pop up, I, I got a little smile on my face. And I was like, you know what? This movie gets like a 30-minute pass from me. So if it, if I'm not warmed up by 30 minutes, then then I'll give it another 30 to to, to win me over. Oh, that's interesting to know. I mean, I definitely, I, I don't know if I really noticed the cinematography as much, but it it did everything in creating this fantasy. Yeah, there were little things that I know that I was kind of paying attention to that I noticed just because I saw his name. But um, yeah, this is a, uh, I didn't realize this was a meta movie. This is all about movie making and film scoring and film writing and and. Yeah, this is uh what what do you think about that? I like that. I like that the movie is self-conscious and that we get meet cute defined in the movie and there's multiple meet cutes. I feel like this movie was like an overstuffed suitcase where there's just things pouring oozing out of it. You've got no less than two romantic main plots uh and then not to mention the the relationships between each of the characters and their family so it just was was completely overstuffed in a way that i don't mind if a movie is trying to do too many things and then in the process also making me laugh and not boring me and making me go ah and i like this then I I will absolutely take it. 
Yeah, I thought I thought the meat cute part was just a tiny bit cringy. <laughs> you didn't like when the Cinema Paradiso music played when Jack Black and Kate Winslet met, and it was very cute. No, what? Why? How? Why was it playing? Because he referenced. Like- he was no, because he was trying to play it for his girlfriend, but she wasn't paying attention to how beautiful the Ennio Morricone oh, score. Yeah, it was in the car. He was, was playing like, it in the car the for her. Like- yeah, it's coming from his car. I got you. But no, the actual meat cute definition scene I thought was just a tiny bit cringy. But all the other like movie references and stuff like that, I thought was. It was pretty good, you know. Sometimes that stuff can can be kind of lazy or hoity-toity. But I think it, I think it works, and in a way, it kind of anticipates the ways that I think rom coms have become more visually creative, especially in television rather than movies. Like I'm thinking of shows like. Uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or Jane the Virgin, where a setup of the main character having repeated trailers of her life because she makes trailers for a living feels completely at home within the sort of, um, you know, fantasy world of those types of shows, those romantic comedy shows. You can totally... Uh, imagine it because they do stuff like that all the time yeah yeah it's a it's an interesting movie so you want to get into it (laughs) how much do you hate it jesus it's it's fine it's fine uh i have a lot of very nice wonderful things to say about this movie and morgan freeman narrated but it was not fine it was not fine at all (laughs) All right, so we're going to start out with Iris, Iris Simpkins, who is a uh, society columnist for the Delhi Telegraph that is in London, and she loves her ex-boyfriend, Jasper Bloom. Who's Um, played by Rufus Sewell, so I get it. Yeah, Rufus Sewell is one of those guys who's great at playing the scumbag, you know, like even when he's the nice guy, he's the scumbag. Um, I think it's that that eye thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's is it something. like a scar? There's something weird with one of his eyes. Um, and so, even though he cheated on her, and he's very emotionally needy, she is really excited about giving him this holiday gift. And you a know, first that, edition, a first edition. While basically he says, like, "Oh, by the way, I left your laundry in the car." Um, and so she's like, she's kind of still, you know, well, she's definitely still holding a flame for him. Uh, but he, he's kind of stringing her along and then boom, drops this major surprise on her that he's getting married to his girlfriend. And that really comes out of nowhere and throws her for a complete loop. Um, it's very sad. <laughs> it's very sad when well, Kate Winslet is good at looking desolate. Yeah, she she does. She spends most of the time in this, at least in the first half of this movie, looking desolate. So Amanda Wood, we we go to L.A. and Amanda Woods is a movie trailer producer slash cutter, and uh, she's in L.A. and she breaks up with her film composer boyfriend Ethan. 
when he admits to cheating on her after she asks him like a hundred times. Um, and then because he kept lying. Yeah. He kept lying and she knew he was lying and he is a scumbag. Um, Ed Burns, I feel like also a pretty good scumbag kind of guy. Yeah. Um, he's very good at playing scumbags. Yeah. And so she's super fed up with, uh, with, dating and stressing and everything and um yeah she she gives some some good monologue on dna and stress and the effects it has on women's eyes uh that that i liked but uh essentially the the plot of the movie starts when she goes to look for a vacation and comes across a sort of home swap website and finds Iris's little cabin in... It's a uh, cottage. Cottage, I'm sorry. Cottage, cabin. I'm sure there's a difference between the two. One's in the in countryside, England, one's in the In England, they give them right? names. Oh, yeah. It's called Rose Hill Cottage. Um, and so, yeah. So they, they agree to switch houses for two weeks starting the next day. Uh, so we're, we're in crazy movie rom-com territory because immediately they're both like, I'm in a bad situation. I want to get away. Let me go to a different country for two weeks in some stranger's house. You know what? I'm on board. I hope hijinks ensue. Uh, so Iris. Why don't you want these women to change their lives and find love? I do want them to. I, by the end of the movie, I was very happy that because I, I didn't know how if this movie was going to go for like uh, a good ending or a bummer ending, and I didn't know if maybe it was going to go fifty fifty. You know, eat its cake and have oh, it too. Yeah, I, I was very happy that this movie ended on a very wonderfully happy, happily ever after. No, it was very warm and cozy. Uh, so Iris goes. <laughs> Iris goes to Amanda's large house and has no trouble setting in. She, she she loves everything about it. Amanda has basically a giant mansion with everything you could ever want in it, and Amanda kind of struggles to make it to the cottage of Iris's. She has a very leap year moment at the beginning when she's like, "Oh, look at her in her silly high heels." Oh. She didn't bring any wellies. Yeah, she doesn't fall in the mud, but she has snow fall on her. And it's, you know, she gets rom-com poo-pooed. <laughs> um, but yeah, she goes. And I, I thought it was very strange that Iris, that there was no mention that Iris had a dog. Uh, I, well, I I'm, mean, I'm sure Amanda has weird. no issue. And, and there's nothing cuter than Cameron Diaz making faces at dogs. Uh, yeah, it was very cute. Um uh, and so Iris's first night there, right? She gets a knock on the door. She's all alone in a cottage in the countryside in a strange foreign place. This cannot, I mean, I've seen these kinds of horror movies, right? This cannot be good news. However, when she opens the door, it's Iris's very handsome older brother, Graham, uh, who drops by after drinking too much at the local pub and asks to spend the night. And Amanda kind of uh, agrees for some reason. and Because he's Jude Law, Brett. Because oh, right. he's Jude Law. Oh, right. Uh, so she agrees for some reason because he's Jude Law. And <laughs> after a very brief conversation, 
Graham unexpectedly kisses her on the lips because he's drunk and he is a womanite. He's he's very like a one night standy kind of guy, and uh, it's it's kind of gross and 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 weird and skeezy, except for the fact that it's Jude Law, so it's not gross and skeezy. Amanda's totally into it, and she's basically like, "Hey, let's uh let's go upstairs and have sex." And Jude Law is also into it because it's Cameron Diaz. So they spend the night together and then they wake up in the morning and it's kind of like, ah, we're adults. We had a good night together. Let's go our separate ways. I have one objection to this whole exchange between them. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what you're describing, insta lust, as we call it in the business. Uh, Insta-lust can be a thing in romances. Sometimes you get two characters who are just so hot that they get hot for each other as soon as they see one another. And I think that Insta-lust can work when you've got two charmers like uh, Jude Law and Cameron Diaz. Insta-lust between Jack Black and Kate Winslet just would not have been believable. Um, but it's more because they have that grow to like each other charm. Um, but the one thing that she says that really bothered me was that foreplay is overrated. And I just want to tell anybody watching this movie, especially people who have never had sex before, because that accounts for a lot of rom-com watchers. Um, it just, that's not true. <laughs> That okay. is so not true. Okay. No wonder, or I don't know. I don't, I don't think that Amanda is bad at sex. I'm sure that her boyfriend is just her ex-boyfriend is being an asshole when she says that he said that about her. But when she says that she thinks foreplay is overrated, that I don't know. I, I'm not kink same and I shouldn't kink shame, but that makes me mad. I was not mad at all because one, there's something about Mary, right? She's a dude's, a, a, a dude's woman, ladies' dude. I don't know, but she, she's Cameron Diaz. She's she's Mary. She's a she's she's appealing to guys. She's the she ultimate guy sports fantasy. center. And uh, but also, I I really do think it fits her character because her character is a fast moving L.A. woman, and she ain't got time for that. She just wants to bing bam, wham bam. Thank you, sir. Um, I I don't know. I, I I do get what you're saying, but I also I think it fits the character. Go ahead, defend Amanda. I will. I, but yeah, it's like, you know, when when she's like, oh, I bet you're glad you knocked now. And he's like, I am. Like, ooh, I, I felt charmed by by Jude Law. He's very charming. Yeah, he's given us the, the Spike Spiegel vibes where it's like he seems like he's just your lovable man whore about town, but he actually misses nothing. Right. Uh, so... The, one of the big reasons why Amanda decides to sleep with Graham is that she has decided she is going to leave the next day. She she basically an hour into her stay at the cottage, she decides she's going to leave. However, she really liked that evening with Graham. So she goes to the pub the next night and Graham sees her there and sparks start to fly. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
back in LA, Iris is kind of just enjoying her life free of responsibilities and getting away from um, Jasper. And uh, she she does a very nice thing by pulling over to uh, escort an elderly neighbor. Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach. Oh, man. When I saw Eli Wallach's name pop up, too, I was like, oh, my God. And then, um, yeah, I just, I, I can't, I, I don't have enough great things to say about Kate Winslet and Eli Wallach together. I, like, I could have used a whole My Dinner with Andre movie of just them talking. I loved it. I so loved it. And yeah, their meet cute is very cute. He's walking down the street. He's um, lost and he's confused because he's super old. And uh, he's from the Oscar. He's from the old Hollywood days, the golden age days. And he's an Oscar winning screenwriter. And uh, he just kind of instantly charms Iris, who's just totally there to chill with him. And uh, they go out to lunch and they start talking and start spending more time with each other. And Arthur kind of gives her a list of movies to watch, like The Lady Eve. And uh, Iris starts to notice that all the movies have very strong leading ladies. With gumption. Yeah. Um, and then also we start to get a few more. I mean, it takes a while for Jack Black just to really kind of kick into the movie but uh jack black kind of shows up good yeah he's uh he's great too um and so he pops into the movie and he kind of has dinner with her because his girlfriend is in where is she in she's in she's 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 in new mexico gotcha yeah she's in shannon sossaman is in new mexico yeah and so uh so he kind of befriends uh, Miles, Miles is Jack Black's name. He befriends Iris, and they just kind of start hanging out a little bit. And it's not, it's not quite as flirty as Amanda and Graham, but it's uh, it, they they have a very good chemistry, and they really click. They're friendly with each other. I especially liked the scene in the movie rental store where Jack Black does themes from different movies. I would. I would sleep with Jack Black if we went through a blockbuster and did that together. Yeah, that sounds like a great night out. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, w- I don't know. I feel like there's probably a lot of stuff that happens in between like the first 30 minutes and the last hour that I don't know if there's anything that particularly stands out to you, but it's basically just these characters hanging out. Like there's, there's no right. plot to the movie, which is fine. Like once I settled into the fact that this was kind of a plotless movie, I just, I was like, yeah, this is, this is a, a fireplace, cozy a warm up and cuddle with your hot cocoa, you know, kind of movie. So exactly. There's, there's not that much to really recap other than just, if you have anything that sticks out that you want to mention, so just just to bring it all together, so Kate Winslet spends all her time with Eli Wallach. Uh, her time in L.A. ends with uh, this big event to commemorate his career. Okay. And on that same night, both she and Jack Black tell off their exes and become ready 
and open to having a relationship with each other. And then Jack Black says that he wants to go on a date with her on New Year's Eve in England. Meanwhile, Cameron Diaz, who couldn't cry because she's (laughs) emotionally unavailable, cries when she's getting away from that good D. Uh, and then she realizes that she doesn't want to be away from that good D anymore. And she goes right back to Jude Law and his smarmy, sexy little face. Uh, and then we get an end with all four of them dancing together on New Year's Eve. Yeah, I will say uh, there were two things that I would have added to this movie. Two Even though it's changes. two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, but at the very end of the movie... When she tells the car to turn around and then the car turns around and she's like, can't you go any faster? And he's like, no, because of the snow. And she's like, all right, stop. And she runs out. I thought, you know, at the beginning of the movie, she's like, hey, can't you drive me down to the cottage? And he's like, no, because I can't turn around. He should never have turned the car around. He should have said no, because of the snow, I can't turn a car around. It would have been a good mirror callback to the beginning because it doesn't make sense. He turns the car around and it's like, She's, and like, you wouldn't she, do that before? She can't run faster than a car. But like, no, you can't turn the car around because maybe then your car will get stuck. I get it. But then the second thing is for the girls on New Year's Eve or whatever, uh, when when they make a reference to the Three Musketeers and they're like, oh, but, you know, we're the Three Musketeers. Are, are you sure you want to join the Three Musketeers or whatever? I thought um, Cameron Diaz should have said, you know. At some point, they did add a fourth musketeer, which is true, right? Right, Was isn't it, it D'Artagnan? Well, I don't know the names of them. I, I can I can name you the four turtles, but I can't name you any of the musketeers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought uh, I thought this movie was very good. There's tons of lines that I wrote down that I thought were great. Um, it's so well written. Uh, it's very Nancy well Meyer written. wrote it and directed it. Yeah. And this movie has probably one of one of the most satisfying f bombs in a PG thirteen movie. <laughs> when Kate Winslet gives that monologue about how, like, how much it sucks to be in a relationship, or how much it sucks to long after someone who doesn't love you back, the unrequited love. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, I like that. And Jack Black just goes, "Well, fuck," and he's like, "You need this drink more than I do." Um, because after he said fuck, I was like, I gotta look up what the rating of this movie is because it didn't seem R rated, but it didn't seem, you know, PG 13 rated. I don't know, but it was PG 13, so I thought that was a good F bomb use. Um, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought there were some really great romantic scenes. I, I really, I felt like this movie had the best use of Jack Black as a romantic lead by making him a songwriter, a composer in the movie and giving him room to play and be Jack Black, especially in the rental, the movie rental place or when he plays um, Iris's theme as he's playing Arthur's theme. Uh, and I just, I thought that that was very beautifully done. I would have liked to see more intimacy between those characters before it became clear that, okay, they're in love with each other and they're going to end up together, but you didn't 
you they didn't get physical in, in the way that um uh Jude Law and Cameron Diaz did. Yeah, their uh, story overshadows the, the yeah. Kate story, which is kind of a bummer because I'm I really am more interested in the Kate Winslet one. <laughs> But um, right, they end up kind of competing for your attention in a way that yeah. that doesn't work as well. And and I I felt like if if I were taking my hack at this type of story, I would want to flesh out the relationship between Iris and Amanda in the way that maybe they uh, borrow a little bit of each other's powers, uh, yeah. where Amanda can can get some of. Um, some of Iris's peace and calmness, whereas, uh, you know, Iris can get some of uh, Amanda's charm and, and bossiness. You know, I, I would have liked to see them interact with each other more. Uh, but I really, I thought that the, the phone sequence felt very Larry David when she's trying to go between her brother and uh, Amanda. And then it becomes immediately clear that they're sleeping together. That line when Uh, she says you slept with her, it was so funny because yeah, (laughs) she gets it. She's not a dummy. She, they Mm -hmm. didn't have to say it to, to say it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I felt like that. Yeah. I just, I, this is a really well done movie and I think that there's a reason why Nancy Meyer is one of the names when it comes to rom-com directors. I think that it's, she is part of a complete rom-com education. Um, yes, that is true. Uh, did you cry at all during this movie? I need to know. Okay. I did shed a little bit of a little tear when Arthur, because even though, again, I don't think that rom-coms or horrors um, by the same token necessarily benefit from twists, but building an appropriate amount of suspense for what you know is coming next is where movies like this tend to be more powerful. And so I knew that Arthur's crowd was going to be a lot bigger than he suspected, that it wasn't just going to be 11 people and that everybody was going to celebrate him and it was going to be his big moment. I knew... I knew that we were going to get this emotional payoff. It wasn't, I was not surprised at all, but did I still choke up? Did I still feel something when Eli Wallach is surprised to see that he's adored and remembered by so many? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then I did really like it when, when Cameron Diaz cried and Jude Law cried and they were both crying together. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> um, what yeah, about you? I didn't cry, but I definitely like teared up. I welled up at the uh, Eli Wallach part. Just seeing, he's such a wonderful actor and he's got such a great chemistry with her. So to see Kate Winslet by his side and to see him well up, I was like, I started welling up and I was like, oh my God. Um, yeah, but the, the, the Cameron Diaz one didn't, that one didn't hit me quite as hard. <laughs> Oh yeah, you didn't you didn't like seeing her become emotionally vulnerable. Your your male fantasy. <laughs> no, I was too busy thinking about the callback to like, wait, the car can just turn around all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of magical car is this? 
Um, yeah, I think they 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 did the emotional moments in this movie really well. Yeah. So I got to ask, who would you kill from this darling movie? I don't. I, there was no one like usually in a rom-com, there's someone that I can pinpoint that I want to kill. I can't really think of anyone in particular that I want to kill in this movie. Maybe Jack Black's girlfriend. What's her name? Shannon. Shannon Sossaman. Yeah. I guess her character's name is Maggie. Yeah, I, w- I would kill Maggie just because we spend so little time with her and we automatically instantly hate her because Jack Black and Kate Winslet are so likable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, why is he like, we don't even get a glimpse of why he likes her, you know, like not that the movie needed that because it's, it's running a bit long, but you know, just the idea that like, you know, I, I like that, that her story has more of a slow burn romantic feel instead of that instant. Yeah. Lust. But um, yeah, just uh, Maggie was, Maggie had no impression on me whatsoever. How about you? I guess that I would kill Jasper because I really (laughs) hate the idea of a man who doesn't want to be with Kate Winslet, but still wants all of her time and attention uh, and then is like poor me when he hasn't broken up with his fiance. Like I thought that was a great line for him where it's like, I wish you could just appreciate the complexity of what I'm going I, I, through. I was going to say, not poor me. He says, I wish you could just accept how confused I am about all this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to, I had to applaud the the cojones of Jasper in that moment, just like she is opening herself up to him and so vulnerable to him, and she asks him a simple yes or no question: "Are you still engaged?" And he gives her the ultimate like "screw you" line of just like "ooh, that is not what you say in that moment." But oh yeah, he was a great Bellamy. I mean, a, a Bellamy to rival Anshuman for but sure. Without- Without that line, you don't get Kate Winslet getting her gumption. That's true. That's true. Maybe maybe the, the accidental death will befall Rufus after <laughs> Kate Winslet gets her gumption monologue. Uh, but he's the only person I can think to kill. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I really like him as a scumbag, which I know you do too, but as a character, I just think he's so hot, but I, I, I love Rufus Sewell. Um, yeah. So I take it. You've got a, uh, a horror version of this movie locked and loaded. A very, uh, yes, I do. Let's unwrap this present. It's, um, this is just a very general sketch, uh, of a movie and you will be, Happy to learn that I did the expected thing for myself, which is turn this into a noir thriller. Nice. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good turn. Yeah, it's just for me, it's so, that one's just always the, it's either competitive killers or thrillers. Those are the, the two types of horror plots that are easiest for me to turn. Uh, and then for the, the name of the movie, I just thought of a come 
come all ye devils <laughs> instead okay. of come all ye faithful. Yeah. And a little bit um, of I saw the devil in there. Yeah. Something, something like that. Um, but let's say that the plot's mostly the same, except instead of Amanda and uh, Iris switching houses to get a break from their deadbeat exes, they're swapping because they have found each other through a darknet forum for people who want to hire others for murder. And so they decide they're going to do a strangers on the train uh, and kill each other's targets. Uh, but they're going to keep things classy because they're women. Um, so Amanda goes to England to kill Iris's brother so that Iris can collect the family inheritance for herself. Uh, and then Iris goes to L.A. to kill Amanda's ex-boyfriend in exchange. And then um, so Amanda still has her little insta-lust, flirty little relationship with Graham. And maybe we could get some suspense with like, is she going to go through with it? Uh, but she goes through with it and she kills Graham. Uh, and then uh, she tries to get confirmation from Iris that Iris has done her side, but she doesn't get any answer. Uh, and then she asks a friend to check up on the house to see if Iris is there. And the friend says, hey, there's there's nobody here. So Amanda thinks that Iris has reneged on the deal. And so she's furious. Uh, and so Amanda goes back to L.A., uh, and then when she gets there, she finds her ex-boyfriend dead in her shower, apparently. Uh, so she tries to call Iris again, uh, but there's no answer. So Amanda leaves the house and never comes back. Uh, and she decides she has to go back to London so that she can go find Iris and, and get to the bottom of this. Uh, but as soon as she gets back to England, she's arrested for Graham's murder. Uh, and then she sees Iris again for the first time. Now Iris is a rich woman uh, from the murder and the inheritance. And Iris acts like they've never met before. Uh, and then Amanda tells the cops that Iris arranged for it all and that she hired Amanda to kill Graham. Uh, she tells him that she can prove it, that uh, her ex, his body is in her place. They just got to go find it and they'll find the evidence that Iris killed him. Uh, and then the cops blow her mind and tell her that they checked the house. The cops in LA checked the house. There's nothing there. And her ex-boyfriend is still alive. Oh, yeah. So Amanda just feels like she's going crazy. Uh, why is this happening to her? And why on Christmas? <laughs> I just, I'll throw it in there. It's Christmas also. Uh, and then Amanda, you know, she won't back down, but she has no way to prove that she's innocent. Uh, well, I mean, she isn't innocent of Graham's murder, but she has no way to prove that, that Iris is also not innocent. So, she gets sentenced. She goes to jail. Uh, Iris then visits Amanda in prison. Um, and she reveals that, uh, you know, the ex helped her, that this whole thing had been a way for her to put Amanda in prison and to do all of this stuff to her on purpose, uh, that that was her plan all along. Um, and Amanda just asked why. And Iris says that it was because Amanda stole Jasper, 
the love of her life. And Amanda can't even remember who Jasper is. And then when she finally does remember, she's like, oh, that guy, I slept with him once and I didn't come. He was a terrible leg. You know, just, you know, it doesn't even mean anything to her. Um, And of course, Iris is just enraged and she's like, oh, you took everything from me, but you don't even remember. Uh, This is the best that you deserve. And then Amanda just totally loses it. She's so angry that she takes out a hidden shiv and then shivs Iris in the um, meeting room. And as Iris bleeds out on the floor and the guards carry Amanda away, she screams, now I've taken everything from you. (laughs) And that's the end. Nice. Yeah, I can see uh, I can see that final shot of the guards pulling her away, and then the credits starting to roll as she, <laughs> as she gets blurry and blurrier and out of focus as she, as yes. she rolls on, kicking and screaming the whole way, like ah, I won. Something, um, something like that. You know, that's that's what you get when you try to diabolique people. You try to diabolique people, then you get shivved in the neck. Yeah, it's um, it's a cautionary Christmas tale. Exactly. Uh, don't diabolique people. Uh, if you want to punish someone, punish them directly. Yeah. No, no twisty, crazy noir turns for you. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of a Christmas turn, let's turn from the holly jolly hot cocoa sipping world of the holiday to the black, dark, gritty world of 1974, a sorority house on Christmas and in peril. Yeah. This, uh... (laughs) This movie, you know, I didn't realize that Black Christmas predated uh halloween but um you're welcome john carpenter Uh, i think that uh black christmas might have been the greatest christmas gift of all to horror movies yeah um halloween i definitely think halloween is like the quintessential slasher but uh yeah black christmas plus giallo times hitchcock equals halloween like this movie yeah as 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 shira would say bob clark walked so john carpenter could run right he's he is the common ancestor uh between halloween and and many other (laughs) slasher movies yeah and um and just what what a universe we live in that the guy who directed black christmas also directed a christmas story (laughs) For real? Just, yeah, yeah. Bob's oh, yeah. fudge! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had what, no what idea. <laughs> yeah. So now I know you have less to choose from than I did when it came to Christmas horror movies, but you know, there's actually there there seems to be a a few of them, a few notable ones, and even some where they decide to make uh, Santa the monster. Uh, yeah. 
uh, Santa's Sleigh. I think I own that movie, but I don't think I've ever seen it. <laughs> Bill Goldberg, I think, is Santa. Isn't Rare Exports too a Santa horror movie? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's yeah, there there are quite a bit of of Christmas horror movies, but I don't know if there's you know if there's a lot of good quality ones. Uh, but would this you is say, a classic. And would you say Black Christmas is the love actually of Christmas horror movies? I don't know how you would mean that, but I don't. I would not say that at all. A standard, a standard of quality and of the time of year. Uh, uh I don't know. I mean, no, maybe. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. But this was a classic. Uh, my my Halloween pick was The Lady in White, which is like a, a very obscure movie. My uh, Thanksgiving pick was Thanksgiving, which is more of an internet cult classic. And so this time I, you know, I'd never seen Black Christmas and I thought, let's do it. Why not? And I was kind of hoping for a little bit, <laughs> for a little bit more. But uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie I- was... It was all right. I actually really liked it. And what's funny is I have a little bit of a history with the 2006 Black Christmas because uh, I went, uh, I'm not sure if Sonia also went, but our mutual friend Mary was having a movie night, a Christmas movie night at her house. And Mary is a fan of horror movies. Uh, And Mary's friends... Uh, they liked Hallmark romance Christmas movies. And so I happened to catch the last five minutes of what looked to be just a really, really awful um, Hallmark rom-com. And I I know I'm a rom-com fan and I, I shouldn't be such a snob who's up my own ass about Hallmark and Lifetime. I, I need to, to learn uh, what's actually good out there instead of just being a cynical elitist. Um, But I I was not that into what I saw. And then Mary was like, let's watch 2006 Black Christmas. And at first the ladies were, were happy for it because Lacey Chabert, who I guess is a um, Hallmark regular is in the 2006 uh, version. But after watching, I think, one person gets stabbed in the eye with a sharpened candy cane and another one die in another Christmassy related way. They just could not take it in it. And uh, Mary had to turn it off because her guests just were not able to handle black Christmas. So I had seen the beginning of the new version of this movie. And then I hadn't seen uh, the original and I think of the remakes, I so I saw a little bit of 2006, and then I read the description for the 2019 Black Christmas. I still think that the original is clearly the best version of this story. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a product of its time, right? Like, it didn't really have anything to go on. Um, I, I think the, the the pacing is kind of outdated. It's... It's not, you know, it, it's it's not for modern audiences. The uh, the gore exploitation is a bit neutered compared to some of the stuff you get today. 
And I don't know, like I, I didn't think it was particularly a great movie, but I thought Bob Clark directed the fuck out of this movie. The way that the movie is shot is really, really great. And, and you know what I think? I think that, that horror movies as a genre and sort of the, the sort of the tropes and the visual tropes of the genre are just starting to get established here. And so this movie feels a lot grittier uh, than, um, you know, what we would think of as horror movies later, like, uh, you know, what we got with Halloween or uh, when did The Exorcist come out? Oh, I just watched that documentary on The Exorcist. I think... Was that 79? Right. Know. So by 78, 79, we were starting to get more movies oh, that... Oh, no. Exorcist was 73, so that was a year oh. before. Ooh. Oh, so that was... Wow, man. William Friedkin was way ahead of his time. Yeah. But it, I, I feel like like this movie feels like there aren't any slasher or horror movies yet or movies that we have a name to define them in this way but there's this um, common urban legend and then also an insane amount of serial killings that are... I, when I tell you as a true crime fanatic that the 70s seems like the most violent decade in American history, it's insane. The level of serial killers that are just like... Uh, it's it's just like I am the devil. I... I the 70s were just like that. Serial killers just literally throwing stones right next to each other for how often they were operating. So a lot of the things in this movie felt like they were ripped from the headlines. Uh, and so it had more of that kind of dry documentary feel versus kind of leaning into the sensationalism of the situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Watching it, I definitely, I I wish I could have had a time machine to go back in time and watch this with an audience because like you said, yeah, I, I I thought it was terrifying. Yeah. Because I wasn't scared at all during this movie. But like you said, this is from the seventies and this is right when serial killers are kind of having a name put to them. And this is when serial killers felt like, you know, there was an explosion of them and where, and they were all over the place and, uh, and they were running wild and had free reign to do whatever they wanted. Unstoppable. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely could see it, it's just hard, you know, it's hard to watch a movie like this and, and have it in proper perspective. But I, I did think multiple times during the movie, like this is a pretty ballsy movie for the time like this. Yeah. For the time, this feels pretty, pretty crazy. Like those phone calls are very disturbing. They're extremely unsettling. And, yeah. you know, there are real life serial killers who used obscene phone calls as part of their modus operandi to terrorize their victims and sometimes to terrorize victims years after they committed crimes on them. Um, so that felt very true to life. Um, but I, I'll tell you uh, the scene that scandalized me the most when we get to it. And and I think it'll surprise you. Um. <laughs> and also this movie feels like the precursor to the complete grindhouse 
uh, <laughs> subgenre of just maniac killers. Um, there's a movie called mm-hmm. Maniac, uh, and that movie, it just, I mean, this movie feels like the prototype maniac of just, yeah, when that guy goes nuts in the attic and starts knocking stuff over. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they did, they did so much, uh, to, to make the movie unsettling and creepy, uh, while never once showing us the killer, which I thought was a really smart move. Yeah. Um, so, so let's get into it. Uh, it's, uh, Christmas time, an unseen figure, his perspective, just like the beginning of Halloween. Yeah. Uh, sneaks into a sorority house during a Christmas party by climbing the trellis and going into the attic. Uh, he seems to know his way around the house quite easily. Uh, and then shortly after, Jess, played by Olivia, is it Husey or, or Hussey? Uh, Juliet from no <laughs> you didn't know where you didn't know that Jess was Juliet from from Romeo and Juliet the cinematic version which one <laughs> the first one the most I famous Danes was the most famous not Romeo plus Juliet but Romeo and Juliet by Franco Zoffarelli you know Jack Black would be one of the people to tell you that movie also has a famous score and love theme. Um, but yeah, so Jess, one of the girls, she picks up the phone. It's an obscene phone call. The caller breathes heavily on the phone while saying strange and awful things. Um, and this isn't the first time that he's called Barb, Margot Kidder, the tough, heavy drinking sorority sister talks back to the caller and hangs up on him. And then later, Claire, the nice girl, goes upstairs to pack for winter vacation when she notices something in her closet. You weren't scared for Claire when the killer was waiting to jump out at her? No, yeah. I, I thought the first 10 minutes of this movie and the last 10, 15 minutes of this movie was great. Um, but the Very the eerie. Part, the middle part felt very 70s sluggish it like i i was maybe expecting more of a just out and out slasher flick but it it really was more of this weird detective kind of like you said um what like urban legends type movie and so you know once i kind of again just like with um with the holiday once i kind of knew what the movie was i was like all right uh you know, I'm not going to hold, I'm not going to be too critical of the movie, but I was kind of hoping for maybe just a little bit more. Yeah. But I mean, you know, just like Jason, um, this is a killer that makes use of his surroundings. If you don't have it, store-bought is fine. So he uses the dry cleaning plastic to suffocate Claire. And then he takes her body up to the attic where he hides. Uh, and then the next day, Claire's dad comes to pick her up, but she's not there. So he goes to the sorority house. He meets Mrs. Mack, our lovable alcoholic matron. Uh, they haven't seen Claire either. They go to the police for help. The police are already tied up looking for this missing high school girl. Uh, and they're just not taking the threat very seriously. And then at the same time, 
Jess is telling her ex-boyfriend that she's going to have an abortion, and he does not take that very well, which leads to the most heinous killing in this movie, the point where Peter decides to take a music stand and destroy <laughs> that beautiful piano that's probably worth between seventy to $150,000. How dare he? How dare he do that to that piano that never deserved to be slain in such an awful way? Truly the worst. Um, entitled, <laughs> entitled rich people. Ugh. I know. And, you know, how dare he to the piano? The piano never did anything to him. It's he who played the awful music. Um, so anyways, they look for Claire and the missing high school girl. Um, then Mrs. Mac, she goes into the attic and she notices Claire's body. And then the killer swings this hook at her kills her and then has a temper tantrum in the attic where he starts throwing stuff around uh the search party on the other hand they find the dismembered remains of the girl jess gets another obscene phone call she files a report with the police and finally they take it seriously and they send in sexy ass sexy ass john saxon as a uh, lieutenant fuller to bug the house phone peter America's also sheriff <laughs> America's sheriff he's, he's always the the cop in the horror movie like this he's great oh really yeah i just know him as the white guy from enter the dragon yep that too uh so peter also shows up again to be angry about just deciding to do what she wants to do with her own body um, and the killer, whose name is probably Billy, goes into Barb's room while she's asleep and starts reliving some traumatic event of his youth where he did something to his sister Agnes. He then stabs Barb with a glass figurine, and it's very jollo. Yes. Yeah, this was definitely the best kill of the movie. Um, it was probably the only kill that was on screen. Right. But um, it just sucked that it had to happen to Margot Kidder. Oh. I know. Margot Kidder was just breathing life into this movie. Not yeah. With her heavy drinking, her witticisms, uh, her joke to the police station about fellatio. Uh, she was just she was over great. here. She also does not strike me as a glass figurine type. Uh, so I was a little bit surprised, but you know, it's all for the art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Jess gets another obscene phone call and the police suspect that it's Peter. Jess reasons with Phil that it's probably not Peter because he was in the house during the calls. Um, and then Phil is killed next. Um, but do we even see it? I don't even remember <laughs> her getting killed. No, I, yeah, I think it kind of happens off screen. Yeah. Something like that. Um, So then Jess receives another call uh, and the police are able to determine that it is coming from inside of the house. Uh, I was shocked. uh, Oh yeah. Because Uh, I kind of knew that it was coming from inside the house, but I was like, I thought that was the other horror movie. I thought that was the big twist of the other horror movie. When a stranger calls. (laughs) So I was like, what? well, that's also based on the same urban legend. 
Yeah, I guess I guess maybe a lot of people didn't see Black Christmas, so it would make sense that that they could reuse that entire twist ending, but I don't know. Right. I mean, well, the Ed, the Ed Gein story is the basis for both the Silence of the Lambs and for um, Psycho. And those are two and really Texas different. Texas Chainsaw. Oh, yeah. And Texas Chainsaw. All three yeah. very different horror movies. But the, all the, those are those are three different horror movies that latch on to different aspects of Ed Gein. Uh, this is like the same thing, which is the obscene phone call the scary phone calls coming from inside the house it's the same exact thing i don't know i thought it was i thought it was interesting i think that's fair i think that's fair uh so it's coming from inside of the house uh and fuller gives very specific instructions (laughs) to the officer to not tell jess that the calls are coming from inside of the house just tell her to walk outside. Just go out outside and wait for the police to come. And then the officer calls Jess and does the exact opposite of what he was told to do. And no, 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 no. I'm going to Larry David out on this one. He did exactly <laughs> what the guy told him to. And then when she says, I'm going to go upstairs, what can he do? He's put in this very awkward situation where he has to convince her, don't go up the stairs. And the only way that, I mean, at, at some point, if he's convincing her not to go up the stairs, she's going to put two plus two together. She's not a dummy. She's going to know the killers inside the house. I felt really bad for that character, but also that character was, was not likable because he was ignoring everyone and treating everyone poorly about the fact that everyone else was getting murdered in the town. And I don't know, but I I did feel bad for him in that, in that situation. I felt very bad. I still think he, he shouldn't have said anything, but I mean, what can you do? Jess is, is not going to follow instructions um, because the plot requires her not to, uh, she goes upstairs. She finds Phil and Barb's corpses. Turns out Billy is standing right behind the door, ready to strike. I, I thought that it was a nice touch seeing his eye through the crack in the door, and he's yeah. got a, a freaking crazy eye. Yeah. Um. So, uh, just slams the door on him, uh, and she tries to leave out the front door, but it's locked. Uh, she then locks herself in the basement, uh, and then Peter who, um, not suspicious at all, decides to look through the windows and then, when he can't get in, breaks into the basement by smashing a window. I mean, I can understand why Jess thinks that it's Peter in this moment uh, when he's being so intrusive. Uh, But then uh, we get our first instance of the accidental friend kill where uh, Jess kills Peter seemingly in self-defense and, and everyone with absolutely zero investigation is like, well, Peter did it. Yeah. He he went, he went crazy. That girl was going to have an abortion and he went crazy (laughs) because it's the 1970s. And and that's masculinity. Um, <laughs> uh, and everybody leaves Jess alone to sleep it off in the house where everyone was murdered. 
and as we all pull away, everything is quiet. You see the light in the attic above, and the attic door opens, suggesting that Billy, the killer, is still there. Mm. Yeah, and then the phone's we, ringing, right? And the phone's ringing, and we yeah. also end on the same shot that we open the movie with, which is the house from the outside. Yeah. Uh, but now everything has changed. We're changed. We're different. We're different people than we were when we were looking at that house in the beginning of the movie. Now we're tainted and the rooms are tainted with those murders. I did really, I, I really like it in a horror movie when a cinematographer goes back to the scene of the crime and it's just still on that room. Like, yeah, you know what happened here. You know what the fuck happened here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was a good movie. I'm, I'm, I am very glad that I finally watched it because, yeah, this, this definitely is the DNA. It's part of the, the missing link of, of horror movies. The, the proto, proto slasher flip, the, the fake out killer at the end, the, the maniac killer, all, all sorts of stuff. I mean, I don't know if this did it all first, but it's it. I'm sure it had a lot of firsts in it, and um, yeah, it's a. Like I said, I really liked the direction of this movie. I thought all the actresses did a really good job. Oh yeah, you know they I were mean? great. Yeah, I thought Future... a lot of the a lot of the shots were really interesting, and and um, it wasn't shot quite as traditionally as like the holiday was. The holiday was a little bit more bland in terms of. You know, uh, we're just going to do wide shot over the shoulder, over the shoulder, close ups. It's, you know, you get it. But right. uh, this movie had a lot of weird, interesting camera angles, a lot of weird dynamics going on. It it was interesting. It was good. Well, it definitely predates Halloween with the killer POV stuff. Yeah, that's also in a lot of Jalo stuff, too. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, um, yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought that was really effective. I felt like the most effective thing they did was the obscene phone calls because all you had to do was put Olivia Hussey on the phone and then have her react. And then I don't know who they got to actually record the voices for the obscene phone calls. Like, uh, uh, you know, the famous story for the, the actress who did the exorcist voice, uh, whoever they got to do the voice acting for the killer and those calls was amazing. Yeah. And, and the different voices. And sometimes the voices mm -hmm. would like overlap in a way. And it just, it did have this really weird, spooky, otherworldly aspect to it where, you know, even if it, if it isn't meant to be taken literally, if you were, cause you know, uh, eyewitness testimony is very unreliable i could see someone going like yeah there were all these different voices talking at the same time and like yeah, you know maybe that's not how it exactly happened but that really puts you in the moment of this weird gross obscene terrifying disturbing phone calls Right. And, and I, and I think that this is one of the things that this movie does so well that I think from the little that I saw of the 2006 version that I 
feel like they made the wrong choice because in here in the, the 1970 version, um, you know a little bit about the killer. You know that his name is probably Billy, that he's mentally disturbed um, and, and that he's hiding out in this attic and that there's this, this crazy thing, horrible things happen to him and his sister Agnes as a child, but, but there's no plot around it. It's just, yeah. it's just the, the, the weird characteristic of this person. Um, but then the 2006 version decides to make the subtext text and gives Billy an entire backstory uh, about why Christmas, why the attic, what did he do to Agnes and, and all of this stuff. And, and it's like, it's like the, so John Carpenter saw black Christmas and thought, what if we did it on Halloween? And then somebody said, uh, somebody watched black Christmas and Halloween and said, well, what if Billy was more like Mike Myers? Uh, and then that's what the 2006 version is. And it just, it doesn't need all of that. I think that, the seventies version understands correctly that the less you know about Billy, the better and the more scarier he is. Yeah. I mean, there's gotta be a way to do it. Cause if you're doing remake territory, you want to, you want to have something new or something interesting and you, I don't know, you want to add to it. You don't want to just do the same thing over and over. I I'm pretty lenient when it comes to remakes. I don't know. The thing that I think remakes make a mistake when they remake something, though, is this making subtext text, taking yeah. things that are suggested or subtle in the original version and thinking that the best way to remake it is to expand this. But when you make something fully realized, then you you it's you sap it of its power i think that the same thing happened in picnic at hanging rock when they tried to turn it into an amazon series because they tried to give you an actual answer to the question of what happened to these girls and why did they disappear when that's not the point like knowing why billy is a homicidal killer doesn't make him more effective as a homicidal killer. Yeah. Um, seeing Mike Myers grow up in the, in, in the asylum doesn't make him more powerful as Mike Myers. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm leaning on the idea of remakes. Like I was, I, I had some, some good hopes, low expectations, but good hopes for the poltergeist remake. Because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, Poltergeist is such a fun thrill ride of a movie. What if the remake plays on our expectations of the original in a fun way and like has a really good roller coastery vibe? But then the the remake just kind of hit all the same beats, but really lackluster. And then they go into the other world zone, you know, and it's like, eh, I don't need to see what's going on over there. It's not scary when you show that stuff. So yeah, I, I do like, I I'm very lenient on the idea of remakes, but I, I am in that camp of most of them are, are pretty garbage. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not poo pooing on remakes as a concept. I think if we're talking just horror movie remakes, I think that the ring is an excellent remake 
that doesn't just go shot for shot, that understands that in remaking a Japanese movie as an American movie for an American audience, that the same exact images aren't going to render the same result and knows how knows what to change. And that that's friend of the podcast, Gore Verbinski. He, he knows a thing or two, our beloved director of Rango. Rango. (laughs) Um, But yeah, what, what else is there to really say about this movie other than how hot John Saxon is? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, you were, uh, we're getting into crush territory for sure. And yeah, you, you basically said everyone in this movie is crush worthy. Except for uh, Peter, because of that scandalous crime against the piano. How dare he? Yeah. And so his I, I do views to, on women's rights. <laughs> I do have to, uh, to reiterate the fact that film crush isn't just about the looks of the actor and it's not just about the character themselves, but the actor's portrayal of the character. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot to consider. There's definitely, there's a couple factors that go into film crush territory. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not curious. saying that I'm shallow all the time. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's good to, um, I mean that, you know, some, sometimes you can't help it. You know, I liked them all. I mean, I liked uh, I liked Margot Kidder. I I think Olivia Hussey is one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. Uh, she is she is a she's beautiful. <laughs> like you know, people use the expression "breathtakingly beautiful," but there are actual women who inspire this in me, and she's she's one of them. She is truly beautiful. It, it absolutely makes sense why she got her break as Juliet. Um, but man, like John Saxon, so cute. I actually wrote down several terrible puns uh, about, uh, or just several. Here, let me let me give you my terrible. It, my crush is John Saxon, obviously, but I want to include for the first time with my crush, um, some really terrible pickup lines or just lines, thirst tweets, if you will. Uh, I want Lieutenant Fuller to film me. I need John Saxon to get our sex on. He could enter my dragon. And because he does judo, I want him to judo throw me on this bed because judo's just all throws. Um, so yeah, no, John Saxon's hot and, and I would let him investigate my murder in the movie story of my life. <laughs> yeah, that would be a one heck of a meat cute, right? John Saxon <laughs> and the corpse of Shira Moore. Just like Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, John uh, what about Saxon you? Choice. You know, you're going to hate me. <laughs> Why? Well, who is, who's your crush? Billy? No, not Billy. I really liked Peter. And let me tell you why. <laughs> what? Let me tell you why. That because piano murderer? The piano murderer. Let me tell you why. One, I thought he handled the whole abortion thing in the complete worst way possible. <laughs> Just the fact that his initial reaction is, you selfish bitch. I was like, all right, buddy. 
can't you see I'm really busy right now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, I liked his voice. I thought he had a good voice, and I had to look it up. And I was shocked to find out that 2001 A Space Odyssey came out before this movie because the fact that he could be in that movie, a Kubrick film, and then he could be in a movie like this, I thought it was really interesting to see an actor with that much gravitas and who is he in 2001 dave you can't he's he's dave i'm uh, hail i need you to unwrap the presents i'm sorry dave i can't do that i didn't yeah, know he was da- he looks so much older in 2001 than he yeah, does in this movie too. yeah so i thought i thought i mean it could be that he also ages at the end of the movie right. <laughs> so i thought that was very interesting but also part of my crush on Peter is going to be the rom-com trope of the closer I get to Peter, the closer I can get to Olivia, who is my real (laughs) crush. (laughs) So that's why I don't mind picking Peter. The thing you like most about Peter is his girlfriend. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I also, yeah, I liked his intense piano playing sequence. That was, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, something's definitely going on with Peter. I I also liked the reaction of the cops as they were listening to Peter cry on the phone to Jess. Right. They're like, you know, something's going on with that guy. Yeah, something is going on with him. Um yeah, so I liked Peter. He was my little crush. Uh, but I, I definitely had to look up Olivia Hussey. And uh, yeah, she was known for Romeo and Juliet, which I have never seen and probably never will. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought she... she that was... one is worth seeing because all, all right. the men in it have cod pieces and they're really large and weird. Um, and then also um, the actor who plays Tibble is really recognizable, but I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, it, watch it for all the great cod pieces, the tights and the cod pieces. <laughs> Sounds like a sounds like something I could cozy up next to with some <laughs> hot cocoa. Hot cocoa and cod pieces. You heard it here first. So, um you remade this movie into a lovely little rom-com, did you? Oh, not only that. I made it about the meaning of Christmas. Oh. Fit some Christmas holiday meaning in there. Oh, you know it. Um, I actually decided uh, this is this feels like a movie that I could easily pitch to Hallmark, even though I just said really not nice things about them earlier <laughs> in this episode. Um, but forget I said any of that. I am not above Hallmark movies at all. I am not an elitist. None of that is true, even though there's a bunch of evidence otherwise. But uh, I call this Elf on the Sorority Shelf. I like it. So Mary the Elf, and that's M-E-R-R-Y. So Mary, Mary, Merry Christmas. Uh, 
She works in the naughty nice department of Santa's workshop. And in this version, we can imagine that Santa's workshop has modernized. So when we say Santa's workshop, maybe it's actually like a high rise in the North Pole and she works in a cubicle and the naughty nice department is, is a tech department. And she thinks that she has found a flaw in the naughty nice algorithm. Uh, There hasn't been a nice person or a person on the nice list in over 50 years. So we got a a plot kind of like spoilers for The Good Place, where there's a flaw in the system by which people are determined to be naughty or nice. Uh, and she decides to go to the big man himself, Santa, to point out the flaw. Uh, and he tells her there's just no nice people anymore. The, there's no, there's nobody good enough for the nice list. Uh, but Mary, she doesn't believe this. So Santa challenges her to find four nice people by Christmas, by Christmas Eve, and then tells her she can use the sleigh. Uh, and if she wins, he'll make changes to the algorithm. Uh, and then if she loses, everything stays the same. So Mary you could, have, you could have a few couple nice little <clears throat> cameos of like people who are known for being nice, like cutting to them doing really mean things. Yes, I I would love to do something like that. I think that would be hilarious. We didn't talk about it, but it was super weird in the holiday when Dustin Hoffman shows up for three seconds. I missed that scene completely. When? Yeah, when he's talking about um, The Graduate, and he's like, you know, that was a score. That song was written for the movie, and it cuts to Dustin Hoffman shopping in Blockbuster, and he he mumbles something and walks away. Oh, man, that was a blink-and-you-miss-it cameo, because I was completely, like... I missed that. I I heard that, but I didn't see that it was, oh, Dustin Hoffman has a cameo in this movie. That's kind of funny. Um <clears throat> but um but so yeah, we can we can have some people who seem like they should be nice and it turns out they're horrible. Um so Mary pulls the files of four nice people uh and loads up the sleigh in preparation to find them. Uh, but when she finds, when she sets out to find the first person, a social worker named Agnes, she gets shot down uh, because Santa Slay, of course, hasn't been out in 50 years. And so when the military sees this unidentified flying object, immediately they're like, kill it. So uh, Mary Slay crashes on the roof of the sorority house. So like any good comedy, you have the character's intended mission, which is to find four nice people. And immediately that mission is, it gets a huge obstacle thrown into it. So the people that she intends to find are no longer available to her and she has to work with the people she has, which are these four sorority sisters who, um, you know, they got some troubles. Um, so, uh, Mary hides in the attic, just like Billy did. Uh, and then she proceeds to spy on the four sorority sisters. And again, this is a real sketch. Um, so we've got Barb who is the leader 
who seems to be really drinking out of control, but we find out that the real reason for her drinking problem is that she doesn't want to go home because that's when she plans to come out of the closet to her parents. Yes, I watched The Happiest Season recently, and yes, I stole that plot point from that movie. Uh, also, that movie was directed by a friend of the podcast, Clea Duvall. It's, uh, oh, wow. It was nice to see that where she's come from, but I'm a cheerleader to directing her own rom-com. Also Barb in the, um, in the, in the actual black Christmas, a little bit of an MVP, right? When she puts her hand over the peace sign, love making poster. And she's trying to, even though she knows the girls are, are maybe a little more explorative than she's letting on. She's kind of like trying to protect them at the same time. Yeah. 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 Oh, Barb. Barb is is a is a good is a better person than she gets given credit for. Um, so there's Barb, there's Jess who's struggling with the revelation that she's pregnant. Claire, let's say that Claire maybe lied to her overprotective parents. Maybe they don't know that she's a sorority girl. Uh, and then we have Phil, who is just the Jewish girl who has nothing to do uh, on Christmas. So, yeah, I wrote myself into the plot. Um, <laughs> uh, so at first, Mary thinks that everything is lost because none of these girls is good enough to bring before Santa. But then she decides, you know, I can work with this. Um, so maybe Mary starts doing secret stuff just like the elf on the shelf. You know, the elf in the shelf gets up and moves around when the kids are asleep. So Mary is the elf on the shelf, except she's doing good things for the sorority. Um, and maybe we can have it so that Phil is the only one that sees her. And it's ironic because Phil's the one that doesn't celebrate Christmas. But then yeah. here's this Christmas elf whose entire mission is to save Christmas. Um, and Phil has to help her and, and maybe they've got this kind of friendly banter. They're like Murtaugh and Briggs or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, Do you have an <clears throat> actress in mind for Mary? Uh, Mary the Elf? Um, I don't know. I think Rachel Dratch can do anything. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or like, I mean, any, any, anybody who's, who's a good comedian, I think this would is be a good for Mary. This is a marketer's dream. This is this is merchandising 101. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Mary is getting a Funko Pop. There's no question about it. Um, <laughs> so through a lot of adorable meddling, cute things happen. Like maybe Mary and Phil help Jess tell off her douchey ex and Jess and Barb maybe reveal that there's something more between them. Maybe they like each other and Jess gives Barb the courage to come out to her parents and uh, maybe the girls come together to help Claire deal with her overprotective parents. And then finally, Mary reveals herself to everyone and maybe they freak out. Um, but then they all agree to help her because they're sorority sisters and they're in this together. So then Mary calls down Santa for the final judgment by laying out milk and cookies in front of the fireplace. And we can have like a whole gimmick where she's like, this is how you call him. Yeah. Uh, and then Santa comes down the chimney with his big red bag. 
and then at first Santa's just a total dick. Uh, maybe he insults each girl with something naughty that they've done that year. Uh, and he's like, Mary, like you brought before me some real pathetic choices for nice people. Uh, no wonder there hasn't been a person on the nice list in 50 years. And then the sorority girls have had enough. And maybe Barb starts telling off Santa, talking about how great Mary is. Maybe they start talking about all the great things Mary did for them and telling Santa that he's an idiot, that the system is clearly broken. If he can't see that the nicest person is right there in front of him. And this, you know, impresses Santa. And him being the mercurial bastard that he always has been, he shifts back again and says, well, it seems I'm wrong. And there's nothing nicer than helping your friends. Uh, and I can see that you've done that for each other tonight. So maybe like in the Santa Claus, Santa gives them a unique gift to them each of them gets their own special meaning of Christmas gift. Uh, and then at last he gives Mary the flash drive that has the changes to the algorithm and the movie can end on Mary installing the changes and people who were formerly on the naughty lists starting to, to get gifts from Santa again. So we can have it end on Santa's sleigh riding out once again for the first time in 50 years with a new, new spirit of Christmas. Aww. Uh, you know in the holiday when Jude Law says that he cries a lot? Uh-huh. Well, seasons two through six of Parks and Rec, pretty much every episode has me at least shedding a single tear uh-huh. Uh, because I like the gimmick. I like the formula of a character who doesn't want to do something, who is opposed to doing something, but then they go out of their way to go against what they originally wanted to help a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like season one of Parks and Rec is good, but you know, you're establishing a lot of the characters. You're just even warming seven, up. Yeah. Season seven is good, but you know, you're just kind of wrapping things up and you know, you know, it's a little, a lot more fan servicey, but it's good. Cause I'm a fan, but two through six is just every episode. It's got a character who doesn't want to do something who does it to make someone else happy. And if that was this movie, Oh, I could definitely see myself crying all throughout it, especially like a baby right at the end of the movie when they all, sacrifice their own wants to help each other's wants and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah i I would be there for that friends helping friends it's it can be potent yeah so now i am ready to hear your big combo pitch all right well i decided to take a little cue from our boy wes craven and my movie is called Bob Clark's New Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, it's it's not called um, Brett Dorman's New Holiday. No, because this is going to be about this is this is a retcon for for uh, Black Christmas. This is going to be about Bob Clark's shooting Black Christmas in 1974. So we have Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder on the set with Bob oh. Clark. 
Um, and Bob Clark is with The Voice. And The Voice is not on the same set as the girls because it's like a, you know, a thing of, you know, like uh, he, he can't meet them because otherwise the suspense will be gone. And so we don't ever get to see who the voice is. It's always in silhouette. Of the obscene caller? Yeah. But we still get the same idea, which is there's a lot of different um, voices. There's a lot of over-talking. The voice is kind of like it is in the movie. It's very intense. And uh, anytime Bob Clark goes to meet it, it's almost like Bob Clark is scared. Um, but at the same time, he's drawn to the voice and, you know, like the whole movie kind of revolves around the voice. But um, Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder have some on onset antics to a degree, but they, they decide to shoot. Bob Clark decides it's best to shoot the voice scenes at the beginning, right? Because that way the the girls are still new to it they're still fresh they're scared they're young they're all kind of up and coming actresses to a degree it's a new genre a bunch of new stuff so he's like we're gonna shoot all the scary stuff right at the beginning so that way we can warm into the to the other stuff but olivia hussey all of her scenes with the voice end up giving her night terrors so she's unable Mm. She's unable to complete the shooting of the movie. She is actually like hospitalized because of the the night terrors. And so this affects the whole set of the movie. They've got the they've got all the scariest parts shot. I mean, she's uh, the main character. Right. So they can't go through and reshoot the whole movie. They're not gonna pull it back to the future, right? Um, and reshoot it with a whole different character. So what happens is Bob Clark goes and talks to the voice and he gets the voice to call Olivia Hussey at the hospital and they start up a little bit more of a romantic relationship where, where Olivia Hussey kind of gets to talk to the voice and get to know the voice and the voice who's scared of, of talking to people starts to warm up to her and they start to have this very Mm. intimate relationship with each other How Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And so like they're on set and maybe she's having trouble with a scene and then she goes and Bob Clark's like, what do you need? And she's like, I don't know what I need. And, and then he's like, well, go talk to the voice. So they get her a phone and she's on the set talking to him. And like, even though she's surrounded by all these people, so she's really shy and insecure, the voice is talking to her and gets her to like say things and open up and be vulnerable. So then you have towards the end of shooting, you have this scene between Olivia Hussey and the voice that is a phone sex scene. And it is the most hot down and dirty, hot and heavy phone sex scene of any movie of all time. So I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And it is intense. And then Olivia Hussey has to shoot the very next scene. The very next day is the I'm pregnant scene. And so when she says I'm pregnant, we then cut to 32 years later, 2006. What? Bob Clark is directing a little movie called The Holiday with Kate Winslet, <laughs> Jubal, Jack Black, and Cameron Diaz. <laughs> Wait, so not Nancy Meyer. 
No, she could be the writer, but Bob Clark has taken over. Maybe Nancy, um, maybe Nancy Myers has some kind of holiday emergency come up. And so Oh fudge. <laughs> so Bob Clark has to step in as emergency director. And so uh we're gonna then start to get these weird things happening on set, very meta things. Um, Kate Winslet is a writer in the movie and her, um, if, if you, if you've ever been on a film set, you know that they have sides. Sides are the, the small little mini versions of scripts that have just the scenes they're shooting for that day. And so it's like a little reference guide for a casting crew to be able to go like, what are we shooting today? Okay. Let me just open up my sides and see what we're filming. Uh, so Kate Winslet's sides start to have little like thought bubbles written in or like little notes written in. And first the thoughts are really innocent and weird. Like, you know, maybe the thought is like, it's exceptionally cold in here today. And then they're shooting a scene out in LA on the beach and it's really warm. But then like this weird gust of wind comes in and she goes, Ooh, it's exceptionally cold today. So it starts oh. really innocent, but then the then the thoughts start to get intense to the point where she's thinking like it's very foreshadowy, like like oh my god, I almost died in that moment. And then she's reading it, and then she's thinking, holy shit, I might die today, you know. And then something like a car what? almost hits her, and she's like, oh my god, I almost died in that moment. Oh my god, this script is coming alive! Wow. And she doesn't know who's writing these these uh, little notes. So little little jokes that I have in there is like maybe uh, Kate Winslet because you know she was uh, in a little movie called Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio. Maybe Leonardo shows up on set, and they have this tradition where maybe they go, they take the whole crew sailing or something, and they recreate the whole scene. And I don't know, <laughs> you know, something weird. But like Leo, that would Leo be can hilarious. Show Leo can show up, and Leo's we can have a lot day of um, on set. <laughs> And we, we can have a lot of like curb type moments where actors are playing themselves, but heightened versions or, or funny versions of themselves. Uh, Jude Law plays an editor in the movie. So he's going to start having memory gaps where, you know, maybe he thinks one day like, oh, I was wearing a, a red sweater. But then everyone comes up to him the next day and goes like, hey, that blue sweater you were wearing was really nice yesterday. And he's like, blue i thought it was red but then he starts having bigger memory gaps where maybe like his assistant comes up and like slaps him and says you monster like you bastard and runs away and he's like what did i do and so he's yeah. got to start putting these pe- and it, you know it is, of course starts to affect his performance and um and and the the memory gaps get bigger and filled with more monumental events and then i was thinking because I don't know about you, but back when I was a teenager and I didn't watch a lot of Jew Law movies or a lot of Ewan McGregor movies, I kind of had them mixed up a little bit. I never had them mixed up. So I kind of, it's it's not like I had them mixed up, but I could, sometimes I had trouble remembering like, was that a Jew Law movie or an Ewan McGregor movie? I don't know. So I was thinking maybe we could have a scene where like, um Cameron Diaz is supposed to have this really like intimate sex scene with Jude Law and and whatever maybe she's supposed to like turn him around really fast and give him a a kiss but then she turns him around really fast and gives him a kiss and then it's Ewan McGregor and then like ah the whole the whole crew laughs because it's a little prank 
Uh, Jack Black is a musician in the movie, so maybe a lot of his songs can be diegetic at first. And then over the course of the movie, like he starts to go insane because he's like, does anyone else hear that music? But then he like can't... in Battlestar Galactica. Does that happen in that? <laughs> oh, oh, this isn't a reference that you understand. But for the Battlestar Galactica nerds out there, when there's a part of the series where characters start hearing the song all along the watchtower, but only oh. certain characters hear it. Ooh. Yeah, kind of like that kind of. It's, I mean, it's a it's a classic gimmick of, uh, you know, the character's got to try to, uh, Jack Black has to kind of act. And maybe because the music's overwhelming, he starts to, like, his acting starts to take on the cadence of the song or whatever. And then, of course, we can have a, a fun what little Kyle What if it's Kyle O Fortuna? Gass. Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> um, Kyle Gass has a little cameo, of course. And I don't have a character planned out for Kyle Gass. I figure Kyle Gass, if he's going to be on set, playing a goofy character he can come up with one he's more than capable of doing that and then cameron diaz starts to get little dvd trailers in the mail and they start out with movies that feature her prominently but then the tra- then the dvds that come in the mail that feature trailers like she pops it in and it's like maybe you know this trailer needs your sign off for approval because she's got i don't know in her contract she has to sign off on all trailers But then the trailers, even if she's a major star in the movie, the trailers start to feature less and less of her. So it's kind of like a mindfuck for an actress to be like, I'm the main actress. So if if you're going to shoot a movie. There's something about. Yeah, there's something about Mary, but you don't see her for the entire trailer. And you're like, what? And then, of course, we can have a little uh, cameo by my boy Tommy Cruise because maybe he's scouting out a relationship and stuff. Cause you know, he's like scouted out a relationship with Katie Holmes and whatever, but you know, they, four years later, they would go on to film a little movie called night and day. Um, and so, yeah. So basically final day of the shooting, it's the house scene with the kids. They, they wrap up the kids quick, right? Because kids, you can't shoot them very long, you know, laws and stuff. So they, they shoot all that stuff, but then they shoot the wide shot that, um, the, the Black Christmas shot, the wide shot of the house with all the actors dancing. And then we get this intense John Carpenter one shot take of like, then the camera starts floating around as the killer starts killing people. And we get legit deaths in the movie. Kate Winslet is going to get a pen to the eye. because She's a writer. Jude Law is going to get a paper cutter maybe get decapitated, right? Because he's an editor. Jack Black, something musically, uh, maybe he gets, uh, you know, like a violin thing shoved down his neck or something. Uh, But Cameron Diaz is the only one who escapes. Oh, she final girls. Yep. If you're wondering how I picked who lives and who dies, a little app called Chwazy, C-H-W-A-Z-I. I just Chwazied for it. <laughs> and oh. unfortunately for Kate, Jude, and Jack, they all Chwazied the death. And Cameron Diaz came up as the only one who lived. So Cameron Diaz escapes. Bob Clark is in the hospital. The killer gets him too, but he doesn't get him all the way. So the killer um, tries to kill him. I don't think him. that Bob Clark would be the main person he wanted to kill. 
Right. Well, we can like fit some kind of fake out in there. Like maybe the cops think it's Bob Clark because they're like, oh, what a coincidence that all these people are dying from this Christmas movie that you're directing. Um, so she goes to the hospital. But then while Cameron Diaz is there talking to Bob Clark, the killer gets Bob Clark. But Bob Clark, in his dying breath, says, go find Olivia. So Cameron Diaz <gasps> goes to find Olivia and visits him. And then she finds out from Olivia that there that her son is the killer and her Aww. son her son is the child of the voice and her and she was impregnated by him during their phone sex scene and oh. the son is now angry that he was forgotten that he that he was just written off in the movie as being aborted and he's like no i should have had my own sequel so then cameron diaz has to find out how she's going to kill the son and so what cameron diaz does is she metas the movie and she watches the trailer for the movie and finds out that the final fight scene is going to take place at the oscars so during the oscar tribute to kate jack and jude with Cameron Diaz on screen. The Oscar Memorial. (laughs) (laughs) The killer comes out wearing a gold Oscar mask and he tries to kill. Very jalo. Yep. He tries to kill Cameron Diaz, but she's all prepared Scooby-Doo style. Her plan goes awry (laughs) and hijinks (laughs) ensue. But then a giant Oscar statue ends up falling and crushing the killer. And so very Joe Schumacher. Yeah, and it's kind of like a hook uh, where, like, the crocodile falls on um, on Dustin Hoffman on hook. And so the Oscar squishes the killer, and it's a, you know, it's a big thing. And then, like, the audience applauds, of course, and stuff like that. But then at the end, the big twist is we find out that Olivia Hussey had twins. What? What? <laughs> Bob Clark's New Holiday. I did originally write Brett Dorman's New Holiday, but then I thought, you know, it's if Bob Clark's the director of the movie. He should, he should get Rankin Bass, Bob yeah. Clark, same difference. So that is a that is a mega mashup of Bob Clark's um, Black Christmas and Nancy Myers is the Holiday. I like that the killer is somewhat supernatural, but also not. It's very, it's it's a little bit of both because the voice seems to be somewhat of a supernatural entity. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Jesus, right? How the heck was Jesus conceived? I don't know. It was a miracle, so. <laughs> oh, whoa. So you, I mean, well, the phone sex is immaculate conception. Yeah. I guess that, that definitely counts. Yeah, it's very Christmassy. I like it. So, yeah, I had a, I had a lot of fun once I, once I got the concept down. Um the 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 title new holiday really inspired the rest of the movie cuz uh, i like ideas, that new nightmare new yeah, holiday <laughs> some of the ideas i had before this were just complete messes and i was really struggling to make it i almost considered forgoing the mashup and just doing two remixes but i said no it's a holiday tradition i have to do it so yeah 
A very merry horror Christmas to you. I, I think you did great. Well, before we get into our holiday season love bites, let's tell the gang where they can find us. Uh, you can email us at necromancerpodcast at gmail. You can catch us on Twitter or Facebook at necromancerpod or Instagram at the necromancer podcast. Please like, subscribe, rate us, send us Christmas letters, requests. Find out if you're on our naughty or nice list. Yeah. I'm just going to say everyone who listens to the podcast is pretty nice. Yes. No, I think if you if you're a subscriber, you are absolutely on our nice list. All right. Let's do love bites. What what kind of love bites do you have for us on Christmas? Well, give yourself a little Christmas present. Go to YouTube and type in Nintendo Lo-Fi. Uh, Nintendo Lo-Fi. Nintendo Lo-Fi. I know you've okay. Made, I know you've made the Lo-Fi references once or twice on the podcast. You know, Lo-Fi beats to chill and study to. Of course. Um, but yeah, I really have been digging these video game Lo-Fi remixes. You an eight-bit um, boy. Yeah, I I am not a fan of The Legend of Zelda at all, really. There's a couple good games that I've played, but a lot but of a them, good chippy tune. I just yeah, I'm not I'm not into Zelda, but Zelda's got some freaking great music, and when you lo-fi it up, it's pretty great. Uh, Mario Mario's got a lot of great Christmas lo-fi remixes for the holidays. Uh, Kirby, I'm a big fan of the Kirby games, and Kirby's also got some great music. Nintendo in general just you has know, killer music. You know who's underrated in the lo-fi music department? Uh, N64, Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong Water Music, very soothing. I was going to say, the ultimate Nintendo lo-fi is, without a doubt, Donkey Kong, the reigning champ of the lo-fi genre donkey kong yeah the what the underwater levels have mm-hmm. an entire ethereal wonderful christmasy not christmasy but like just you know in you know cuddle up with uh your little friend mary jane and a cup of hot cocoa and uh put on some donkey kong lo-fi and just get transported to a magical place now that's a uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, it is. It is just, I've been obsessed with it lately. And um, yeah, Nintendo Lo-Fi. Nintendo and chill, baby. I think how that's a good you? recommendation. Yeah, so remember how I said that I was cynical and elitist and bitter? Well, all of those things are still true, but I watched an adorable, extremely pleasant and cute little rom-com Christmas series uh, called Dash and Lily. It's on Netflix. And this series throws at you every single rom-com trope and cliche that it can fit uh, in into the story. And you know what? I loved every minute of it. Does this show have two extremely adult teens that reference things that teens don't typically care about, like J.D. Salinger and French cinema? You know, absolutely. 
Do they engage in a very tropey rom-com plot where they write dares in a notebook and then pass it to each other anonymously without seeing each other? Yes. Does one of them love Christmas and is shiny and happy while the other one hates Christmas and is dark and grumpy? Yes. All of these things are true. And then at the same time, it's absolutely delightful. Uh, I think that they chose really cute young actors to play Dash and Lily. I think that it was well directed. Uh, I noticed that uh, Wonder Years, Fred Savage actually directed some of the episodes. And I actually think that Fred Savage is a pretty good director of TV. I think that... He's made his way around different shows. I think he's directed quite a few episodes of Always Sunny in Philadelphia, too. And he's really good. Um, So, yeah, if you're looking for a really sweet, sugary little rom-com Christmas series, go watch Dash and Lily because it's really adorable. All right. Dash and Lily on Netflix. Yes. Very nice. All right. Well, that is all for this week. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.